this is Network Zero, and finally we have the first proper episode one of this Chronicles of Darkness podcast, which is a spin-off podcast to Darker Days Radio, and I guess then is a cousin to the World of Darkness uh, podcast, which is Mid- uh, Midnight Express. So I am, of course, joined by David. Hello. And I am joined by a long-suffering game, gamer in my team, Sam. Hello. And for this first show, um, it makes sense to look at what is uh, now officially Chronicles of Darkness. So if people still don't quite understand what's going on, uh, Chronicles of Darkness is the new brand name for what was uh, New World of Darkness, what was World of Darkness before they brought back all the old stuff. So this means we're covering, uh, in the show, we'll be covering games like Vampire the Requiem, Werewolf the, Apocaly- uh, Werewolf the Apocalypse, no, Werewolf the Forsaken, uh, Mage the Awakening, and all of the other uh, side games which uh, bolt on to the rule system that Chronicles of Darkness is. Uh, in particular, of course, we're now into an age where we have a second edition of some of those games. So that means that we will be looking at how the settings for certain games have evolved and maybe have distilled certain ideas and and themes from the last, what well, almost 10 years of publishing for some of those games. And then on the side, we'll also be looking at particular films and TV that can inspire us for our games. Because Darker Days has the whole uh, thing with its secret frequency. So we will be having our Curly and Camera segment. But before we get into that, what gaming or interesting things have people been up to? We'll start with David. What have you been up to gaming-wise or interesting stuff? Quite a lot, actually. Um, I'm running a China Miebel meets David Cronenberg Numenera campaign with my wife and two friends, uh, which is full of body horror and intrigue. That's going really well. I've interviewed the design team for Cult Divinity Lost, a new edition of the uh, somewhat infamous Scandinavian horror RPG. I've done that for Twisted Tales, and I'm very much looking forward to running that at some point. Uh, I backed the Delta Green Kickstarter and expect to start receiving books for that fairly soon and also in wargaming sense because i know you are a keen war machine player chris i've mm-hmm. um, recently uh, started playing competitively and won two out of my um three games in my first tournament so there's still a horror connection as i play cricks which are as you know mechanical undead monstrosities yes yes cricks are very very cool which um which caster are you running for your army uh asphyxius the hellbringer uh, I have been oh. playing Gorshade Lord of Ruin, but he just stayed in the uh, the bag for the entire day. Okay, cool. Well, let's see. Oh, let's let's do mine because mine's fairly simple. So I've been playing in a journeyman league for uh, War Machine Hordes, running uh, my Scorn army. So that's uh, Morgul, who, if anyone doesn't really know about uh, War Machine or Hordes, uh, where Cricks are a bunch of undead gits scorn or a bunch of pseudo persian samurai um tormentors torturers but they're not really evil they're just evil from a certain point of view which happens to be if you're human and not one of them 
Uh, and so that's gone really well. I think I've, I've played seven games, one, four, and of course you get points for painted stuff, so I'm doing quite well on that. Uh, I've been running a few Pharaoh in that army, which has been funny. Um, and of course, I get, as you play each week, you know, or every so often, the armies get a bit bigger as you use new stuff. So I'm looking forward to running uh, Hexrus for a vampire army, essentially. And then other gaming stuff-wise, oh, um, playing Kingdom Death, which is a hard, hard solo play board game with some very horrific models. And that's really good fun. And I think the best way to describe it is has emergent role play. So okay. it has a lot of random events and, and, and things going on. So you can't get too attached to your settlers who are in this nightmarish kind of underworld. And instead, you, you kind of have to think of yourself as like the demigod of the settlement. You're that character. You're not the little people. Because if you get too attached, they're going to die and you get upset. So it's a little bit it's, like for old school gamers, uh, Populous, where you're... Yes, kind of. Yeah, Populous, a bit of Civ, bit of Necromunda, that kind of thing in there. Um, cool. And then we're getting together a role play group here. I think we're going to yeah, play... Slowly. slowly. Uh, we're going to haze the new player, not haze, but like it should be, <laughs> it should be fine. You know, fortunately, you ask friends that live locally where you move somewhere and then finally you find someone. So uh, my plans for Geist finally um so that will be a game set in paris so there'll be a bit of uh themes of stuff like alchemy and things best left forgotten because in geist of course you can always dig up things or at least uh at least summon the ghost of someone that might remember something that is best left forgotten so that's i think that's gaming wise for me and then, Sam, you've been doing some writing type stuff for some characters for inspiration for anything? Um, I'm actually writing a lot of uh, like prose poetry at okay. the moment, so it's completely different for me right now. I'm hoping to launch a new Instagram with all my art and photography and writing on it soon. So that's what that I'm working great. on. <laughs> There's a lot of, um, I think the thing that's going to help you with that is that round Sheffield, there's quite a lot of like abandoned buildings. It's kind of, again, that steel works and things like that. Yeah. So, so we're hoping to do some urban exploration. Yes. Feeling a little better. So. Uh, yes. Uh, and go to the local cemetery. Yeah. The uh, Sheffield General Cemetery, which is a Victorian cemetery, which is a uh it's very well looked after by a trust to take care of it and it's it's quite overgrown but um really great for taking photos so i'm excited to go there soon that yeah. sounds great <laughs> so yeah that's that sounds like actually some decent stuff going on oh one last thing um because obviously that's close to my heart and related because it's horror related uh i'll be running in just over a week's time a one-shot adventure for uh, some of the guys at the gaming club uh, of uh, Iron Kingdoms roleplay. So I've gone back to the very first adventure that I wrote as an intro game for that, which Sam played in, and have reworked it and updated it. So much stuff has come out since then. And it's basically Sleepy Hollow meets um, meets uh, Brotherhood of the Wolf. So the Beast of Gévaudan, but done with a Iron Kingdom's twist. So, yeah. I'll let know how that goes. 
it, it worked well the first time round, and I think this time round, um, I, I don't feel hopeful for the guys. I don't feel hopeful for them one bit because they've gone for a very different adventuring party. Uh, oh, well. Anyway, less about that then. Let's get on to the main segment of the show, which we don't have a name for. So, Chronicles of Darkness is the new name uh, for the second edition, essentially, of New World of Darkness. Uh, And we had something of a... I guess it was never going to be this big fat book and being the second edition book that I have in front of me, which you can get through drive through RPG right now. And it's very good in a premium printing, a very good uh, copy, not as the same as the old um, traditional print run books, but it's almost as good. And so we had, I won't say preview, but some of the rules here were released as part of the God Machine Chronicles update to the previous edition's rule book. So they, it basically guided you to which bits you had to ignore and which bits you, you had to use and what changes were there. So underlying the system, there, the, I would say the dice mechanics haven't changed at all. We've still got, you know, take this attribute, take this skill, add them together. That's how many dice you roll against a fixed difficulty. The things which operate now on top of it, which... I think are the and going forward into the other game lines are the key differences which push this game even further away from World of Darkness. I think is the the change of how morality and is used and how your characters um, psychologically degenerate. And we have now this thing knows the uh, integrity system. Uh, so, David, how much have you loved this new system? What 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 do you take from this and think, wow, that's cool, I can't wait to use it? Or how much do you, do you feel this is a, a substantial difference to the classic World of Darkness with its typical humanity system and its old-school morality system? Well, um, it's quite an interesting uh, experience for me because I um, predominantly... In fact, entirely all my experience of World of Darkness has been through as a player rather than running the games, um, which I think differentiates me from a lot of the uh, other people who do uh, World of Darkness podcasts, which tend to be very much storytelling-centric. So my GM for the long-running vampire game I've been in since, I think, 2011, and is still going on now, um, started to incorporate some of the new ideas into his game um, when uh, Vampire the Requiem 2nd Edition, or as it was known at the time, the um, Strix Chronicles, Blood and Smoke. Um, so it's hard for me to say with regards to the, the um, mechanical elements because there was a kind of a blurring together of them uh, in terms of my experience. However, having read um, both the old... Um, uh, New World of Darkness core book and Chronicles of Darkness. Um, I was particularly impressed by um, the chapter of Black Thread storytelling 
um, which has lots of useful advice for any character-focused horror role-playing game, not just Chronicles of Darkness, I felt. Um, I was particularly interested in um, the various suggestions for how you could divide the storyteller role. So in the long-running vampire game I've been in, uh, the players and storyteller uh, bounce ideas as to where to take the story next off each other before and after every session. So it feels very collaborative. It's not um, that the storyteller is, is withholding too much of the mystery. Um, but I've never played in a multi-storyteller campaign. I just wondered, have you done that? Have you had any experience of that? So where it might shift from week to week, who's taking on the storyteller role? Never, I've never done that. Um, I'm not too, I'm not too sure whether that's something I personally would find as enjoyable as a GM. I think that's because I quite like having that kind of author control over where the game's going and what the story is and the themes that I'm trying to tell. But I think, I think maybe Chronicles of Darkness especially a mortals game maybe fits that possibly better because I think with such a, the, the lack of meta plot for starters and how open the setting is, it perhaps lends itself to players possibly having reoccurring characters and everyone has a character that, that they can use, including whoever's, you know, everyone's going to be a GM. And so that means everyone has a player character, maybe. Um, but I think maybe you could, you could, possibly run a chronicle of connected stories but the characters themselves aren't connected so it's a bit more like a um i'm trying to think of the term uh for that type of tv show um but, you know like the, the the old hunger tv series or um or even like the twilight zone or the outer limits you know you've got you've got these episodes but they're all self-contained an anthology show that's the word I was looking for. There we go. There um, yeah. Or of course you could run it sort of like, I guess like the X-Files, but rather than you've just got Mulder and Scully, you've got like a larger cast of um, investigators. Yeah. So each week it might be a, a monster of the week type episode or session as a one shot. And whoever takes on the storyteller role perhaps has to come up with the idea and the concept and it'd be run for a session. Uh, another idea that I thought might work quite well is if you were doing it with a you know in a one-shot um, type environment, um, maybe something like um, a haunted house uh, mystery where everyone's throwing ideas into the mix and you try to share the storytelling role that way. If there's no um, kind of human agency or human level intelligence agency at work, um, that could work perhaps. Um, I think that type of that type of play style we've we've actually done. Um, Sam, do you remember when we played uh, Fiasco? Yeah. 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 And so that in that, I can't quite remember the mechanics. There was a way that you tied each other's each each of your actions to each other, but then I think it had a self-contained system where eventually you had to refer to it, and it told you what happened to your character based upon the choices you some of the choices you made so yeah do you remember much more of it or am um, i the game in particular we played was kind of a, a lot stock smoking mm. barrel type game like it was very very gangsters British in london gangsters yeah type so is it heist fun. 
and no, it was about. Um, I remember there being a corpse, definitely. It was just a series in of a freezer. A series of <laughs> bad, bad things happening, and they all just kind of it all just snowballed together in one location, which I guess works into the idea of a haunted house. So. I think what you would need there is to do the haunted house approach. As you, and I'm sure there's a fiasco package that shows you how to do this, is if you have enough structures that everything that all the players are putting in leads you to a, a, a climax and finale where there is a satisfactory conclusion where, it, where the players all feel like they've now got something at risk. And it somehow allows you to yeah, resolve that. Like, well, we also had like the, you know, we had the characters who were kind of governing what was going on. You know, the characters who were responsible for the things going on, and then you have other people that kind of get swept up into mm. it. You know, who are kind of innocent characters who are just happen to be there at the time, and what happens to them and the choices they make, even though they're not really involved in the events, mm. which is quite interesting. So I think it's definitely work. It's just not something I've had any uh, real experience with. Yeah, my, my concern is having no frame of reference. I was reading through some of the ideas and they sounded intriguing, but I wondered whether the level of preparation that would be required to uh, put them into place and, and make them work satisfactorily might actually be far greater than the traditional GM role where they can, you know, you could ask players for, what sort of atmosphere are you interested in? Are you, do you want a kind of slow burn horror or something more visceral and intense, but ultimately um, maintain that authorial control? Because I guess there may be a danger that it ends up satisfying no one. Yes. Um, I think everyone has to be on board what the story is attempting to be in tone. And if not, every, if everyone's if some people aren't fully committed to that, I could see it being derailed. And I, I think that's part of having the right type of group for it. So yes. it may be something you can do after having done a very long chronicle and everyone, everyone's got an idea of possibly how you as a GM run the game. And maybe you've already also run a, another chronicle has been run by another person in the group and they run their chronicles in roughly the same manner and that means everyone is on the same, has the same sort of reference from which they can then go, well, if we're all, if we all have that experience, we know what type of game that we want out in the end, then we can all work towards that common goal. Whereas if you've got players that are a bit more just antagonistic and just want to, you know, hunt the scary thing, kill the scary thing, then maybe they're not going to quite work in that type of game because sure. they just want to play. But it's definitely something to, uh, something to look into. Um, it also, I would say that that, that, is pos- that is also one of the play styles suggested uh, for Mummy the Curse because, of course, in that game uh, you have, uh, as a suggestion, you, you have a rotating... Uh, a ro- it rotates who gets to play the mummy in, in the... Uh, in the player troop and the rest of the players play the mummy's cult. So having that role, you know, change uh, between stories or between sessions at least means then each player is, is contributing to this character that, that 
is of course relative to the other characters is is monumentally powerful uh and it also means that each each player can help construct the the background of a mummy which in that game a mummy is oh uh, how can we put it mummy the curse is basically highlander in some respects because the mummy is come back to life every so so often over the the centuries or eons that they've lived so many different lifetimes that they have a quite the uh the mishmash of memories so you can kind of each player can bring something to to kind of maybe even uh, detail a certain time period where that mummy was uh a lot you know not alive they're undead but you know awake and operating um and so that can... play style is definitely valid and you could definitely see how uh, a mummy that's awakened at uh, various different stages and has lost memories um, could have multiple personalities um, attached to the memories and, and be a much more fragmented character um, than pretty much any of the other game lines. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I think that would still give more of a framework where you have a storyteller. And so maybe you could use some of those ideas in this chapter to help with running Mummy the Curse, perhaps? Suggest Possibly people read it. So. Possibly so. Um, okay. Um, so that was the Black Threads. Was there anything else that you wanted to pick out from there? or? Um, well, other than I think it's something that has come up a few times when I've thought about uh, running a New World of Darkness campaign, or now Chronicles of Darkness, is that... Um, it's quite a sophisticated sort of narrative that's being constructed, especially and we've discussed in episode zero, some of the more complex and challenging lines uh, to approach. So something like um, Promethean, the created demon, the descent, mummy, the curse. Um, and I found that this section was really helpful. Just thinking through the, the mechanics of story writing for a role-playing game. Um, I think that it's one of the clearest iterations of, of, of that explanatory section because sometimes you'll read those sections and there's an implicit sense that people are already uh, have a very strong grasp of what's required of them and this is fine-tuning. I thought that this was a really, really um, uh, clear, useful chapter that I can see myself going back to and uh, referring to in future when I come to eventually running one of the many games I own. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Um, the other chapter that really jumped out to me yeah. um, was uh, Horrors and Wonders Antagonists. Um, and I don't know whether this will um, lead into our next section or we want to save this for, for the next section, but um, it basically separates into three uh, sections. You have um, the antagonists, which are human level, um, enemies, uh, people that the uh, player characters might encounter, ephemeral beings, so ghosts, spirits, and angels, and um, the third type, which were horrors, which are much more corporeal horrors. And uh, I thought this was, again, a really nice way of bringing in a lot of elements that have been introduced to the New World of Darkness over time and distilling them into um, a very concise um toolbox that you could approach with regards to uh constructing narratives and uh, antagonists that are appropriate in terms of power level for uh mortal characters in the world of darkness 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's clear that this. I mean, it's clear that this this chapter is is born out of the fact that the the preceding books, well, game lines as well of Chronicles of Darkness, have led to a very well well fleshed out understanding of the metaphysics they want to represent for uh, at least at least for their ephemeral beings. So you know the angels. Uh, demons, which covers both types, you know, demons of the God Machine, demons of the Inferno, uh, the Quashilim, which are these strange uh, ephemeral beings that uh, turn up in Promethean, uh, the and all the manner of spirits that you get in um, in Werewolf, in Mage, uh, and and into a certain extent, of course, with Vampire, because of course, and Geist, because you're dealing with ghosts and. You know, being 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 supernatural monsters, you're more than likely going to kill some people, and they're going to come back a bit angry. So, um, you know, Onyx Path has got a very good uns- good grip on how to uh, to present these, and so what we've got is a very good, concise slice of the rules to deal with ephemeral beings. Um, the antagonist is is the typical thing you normally see in a um, in the back of any of the uh, previous books of antagonists, um, I think again the important point here, especially if you're new to Chronicles of Darkness, is that not every antagonist needs to be fully, you know, have massive sheets of background and stuff. It's just the key stats on how you use them. And horrors, I would really like to see when I look at this chapter and I look at like, oh, how can you build a particular monster and you've got a list of different abilities you can add together to create uh, a particular uh, whether it's whether it is some alchemical aberration or maybe it's the uh, the weird troglodyte creatures from the descent. Troglodyte, the appropriate way to describe them? I don't know. They're, they're, they're obviously they're, they're kind of like, you know, misshapen humans due to evolution or cryptids of course uh you could use these quite happily to build some idea build some uh monsters for those games uh and i would like to see this kind of chapter expanded by kind of like a um a second edition version of world of darkness antagonists do you have you have you got a copy of that one i don't have a copy but i'm familiar with it and uh... That kind of did the same thing for Chronicles of Darkness. It presented, um, well, for back, you know, back in first edition, it presented different types of antagonists. So it had uh, ideas for cults and where the the thing you're really facing is just humans driven mad, either by by the fact the world is much darker and and they've just fallen to whatever crazy ideas they have, and there is no supernatural thing that you're fighting. It is just a cult that believes in some strange uh, belief of uh, of of whatever form or shape it's taken, or you've also got in their um, weird antagonists like the the living the the weird living black mold that mo- that if you're a vampire feeds on you and it and it actually moves towards vampiric flesh when it when it detects it nearby. Or it's got a also that game also that sorry that book had a build your own zombie so you can build you had different ways that you can uh, you could put together different attributes and so forth and abilities to to create zombies 
that would be appropriate to a particular inspiration because of course zombies in uh the day of the dead or anything like that is quite different to the the zombie like creatures in say world wars z or um 28 days later 28 days later so it's a good that i think that book is good to go back to in conjunction with this with this chapter to build different types of horrors um and that sort of brings us um to uh a point where it really differs from that first edition new world of darkness in that that book was the core rules for all the other game lines um and that each said that you had to have a copy of that book in order to to run it so if you wanted to play vampire the requiem you had to have um the core new world of darkness book um that my understanding is that um, certainly with uh, Vampire the Requiem second edition and going forward, all the um, new rules, the, all the rules required to play the game will be in those books. So that, that, that is, standalone. is that that's right. Yeah, that is completely correct. Um, the only way you can basically describe um, Chronicles of Darkness as a book for the other game lines is that you've got a, maybe a more fleshed out description of how certain systems work which while they're presented in those game lines the descriptions in those books are obviously competing for space with the the very setting relevant information for those games so you know if you want more conditions which we can talk about briefly or you or you want to build for vampire uh an interesting antagonist that isn't one of the strix or isn't one of Belle Isle's Brood or Seven or or some other vampiric you know creation like a like a Hellhound or something, then you know, you can always come back to this book and use it. Or of course, if you want to have ghosts, you come back to this book and you've got you've got um you've got all the uh, all the rules for manifestations and bands and influences which are appropriate for ghosts because the Strix are not as far as ephemeral beings are concerned the strix are not really the same as other spirits they're similar but they're not the same um so yeah this book is is very much a very good companion to have with those other books especially if you then start to want to introduce say cross cross splat books so in other words you want to have like it may be feasible that you're running a vampire game but you want more fleshed out rules to deal with the mortals that are in that game because someone's playing a ghoul or or something like that or introduce elements of the god machine um more overtly than it being in the background indeed because there is a vampire the requiem covenant that's all about following the god machine and his transmissions some very strange vampires they are um and of course that is a, a feature of of this book is that we have rules for angels which when we say angels, we're really not talking about the Archangel Michael or uh, Gabriel. We're talking about the angels of the God Machine. And the God Machine is very much a eldritch, Lovecraftian type entity, which is using the, uh, using the mortal realms for its own needs to create various, um, I'm trying to think of the word, infrastructure and, and occult matrices to create more angels or to create the things that it that it's feeding off what the god machine exactly wants i don't know but this book of course presents uh the different tiers of games that you can play so when we say tiers that's whether you're playing a very 
you know, the evil is in your backyard or the evil is in your city or the evil is in your country or you're trying to fight the god machine on a cosmological kind of scale or at least a world scale. Cosmological is another tier which I think Mage deals with quite happily. Uh, and it talks about linchpins and how you build... Um, how you build these infrastructure and what their weak points are, which is the linchpin and how infrastructures are all interconnected. So um, I would like to run a God Machine Chronicles game. I am wondering whether I would have more fun running a Mortals God, God Machine Chronicles game before running Demon, almost running it like a mini series before running Demon. Would be well, appropriate. Um, when we get to uh, our cinema section, I've got some ideas for how you could bring demons from Demon Descent into a Mortals campaign. Okay. I think I might be able to answer some of your queries because I know on Darker Days, um, you've talked about uh, how demon, um, and I agree, the material is so evocative and um, the artwork's fantastic, but it's, it's kind of how do you uh, think in those terms? How do you include... Uh, characters that don't think uh, I think that demons are the only um, splat although I'm, I, there may be more now but I think they're the only splat that has no connection to a, a human identity apart from they take on cover but the, the entity was not ever human before um, the entity is some kind of biomechanical horror um, whereas most of the other splats have at least some strong connection at the, the heart of their identity to humanity yeah. uh yeah we'll get to that in the in the next section then um some other things though we'll say about the rules obviously i think the main i say one of the main difference of, uh, of chronicles of darkness is the change of the morality system to integrity so the point there is that i think the the original vampire uh the masquerade and world of darkness morality system was about like you know doing bad things made you mad which is re and uh, made you degenerate in your humanity which was always considered uh especially when more modern writers got got in on the act with uh world of darkness was considered a very kind of victorian approach to it whereas uh the integrity system is really about how to deal with stress and trauma and shock and certain characters of course are going to be more uh, conditioned to deal with those things than others and to help them deal with those things they have anchors anchors being people things places they care about that help them uh resist uh and 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 um and replenish their integrity so that they don't just go off mad so in that respect i feel like chronicles of darkness feels a bit more like a bit more a bit more like Contemporary, a bit more Call of Cthulhu in the approach of how it's dealing with the things that drive people mad is not doing evil, is not necessarily doing what are considered cardinal sins because just because you're a thief doesn't make you less of a human. Uh, things like that. In sure. some respects, you could argue being a thief actually makes you more of a human when you've got things like demons and so forth running around. Yeah, I... An element of, and it's it's worse in computer game uh, RPGs where they have a, a morality system. You're free to choose uh, whatever actions, but if you choose the wrong course of action, uh, then you will be punished by the mechanics of the system. So um, a game such as Baldur's Gate, 
you can play as an evil character, but the story makes no sense and you'll be attacked relentlessly by the city guards for doing that. Um, I think that really what World of Darkness is all about for me, Chronicles of Darkness, I'll, I'll need to um, be careful about crossing those and using them interchangeably going forward. Um, but they're about difficult moral choices, not about being um, good. And it really doesn't make a huge amount of sense to play a game as consciously trying to be evil. Instead, it's a very uh, morally ambiguous world um, and the, the cosmology of it is also um, similarly complex. And it's very difficult to know what's the right decision to take. Um, so a system that's more about dealing with the things that you have to encounter and whether or not you can take those stresses and the effects that they have on the character as you say, it moves away from a, a Victorian um, morality system and opens up, I think, um, a, a far broader range of choices. And I think they're actually more in line as we go forward with this podcast, looking at contemporary uh, film and television um, from Breaking Bad to Hannibal. Um, really, the, the kind of narratives that really seem to be inspiring people are very... Um, complex and, and morally grey in their tone. Morally grey is fun. <laughs> Does this mean we actually have to watch Breaking Bad then? Oh, painful decision. <laughs> painful. Oh. I'm not we going to. We, we tried before. <sighs> yeah. I can. I um... We're going to be very popular with people. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, I, there's actually too much. TV um, now that's of a really high quality and relevant to this podcast, we could pretty much do nothing but watch TV and still not cover absolutely everything. So I think that's it's... the thing that there's so much to watch these days, which is fantastic, but also kind of stressful at the same time. <laughs> I, I'm also sick of, on a brief tangent, I'm sick of having to do the, the classic thing of, oh, it'll get better. And, you know, if you get past the first season, if you get past the first two seasons, it gets better. I'm not. I'm not going to do that. I've got. I've got too many toy soldiers to paint. I've got too much <laughs> war gaming to do, and and other things, and reading books, and actually running games to plonk my ass down in a in a show in front of a show that will get better once I've watched twelve hours of it. Mm. Yes, yeah. there's, there's, there are plenty of shows out there that are great from the get go. Um, yeah. to, at the moment, um, uh, there are so many series that. Um, I and my wife have um, started and then just not had time to go back. So uh, on Amazon, um, Mr. Robot, we saw the first episode of that. It's fantastic, really engaging, really interesting. And that was about two months ago. At some point, we'll watch episode two. <laughs> um, we brought up Hannibal. I was going to something related to it. And I noticed this. I don't think it was actually in the God Machine Chronicles rules um, uh, expansion, but it's in this book. Is it gives um, it gives a bit more laid out um, rules on investigations, and one of the important things it says here is there are no binary rule uh, roles. So essentially, what Chronicles of Darkness is trying to present is a nice structure for how to build your investigation scenes for your characters, and one of the important things in this is it's not whether your characters are going to find clues or not 
because if they don't find clues, if they find no clues at all, the um, the day the game doesn't progress any further. It gets stuck because what's the point of that? You know, you're not you want to tell the story, and the issue is how well the characters get through the story. Putting so the road putting roadblocks in the way is pointless. The classic um, issue um, that's raised by that is in uh, Call of Cthulhu, where you'll have to make a spot hidden roll or library's roll in order to find the clue to progress. And potentially, you can just not make that roll. And the um, GM or keeper in Call of Cthulhu terms can find other ways of feeding that in, but it becomes increasingly contrived. And this system that uh, Onyx Path are using here um, reminds me of the Gumshoe system. I don't know if you've got any familiarity. Exactly, with yeah. We've played Gumshoe, haven't we, Sam? Have we? Trails, Trail of Cthulhu. Trail of Cthulhu, yeah. Yes. So yeah. you, we, I can't remember I what we played. We played an adaption of the, the, was it Rats in the Walls? Or was it something else? Oh, yeah, I do remember there were rats. And I think there was another <laughs> one where there was some crazy painting and my character just went, oh, what a lovely, crazy painting. Because it's Cthulhu. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's, it's, this stinks of gumshoe. But that's good because it works and it pushes the story forward. Absolutely. And um, so in uh, Gumshoe and Trail of Cthulhu, the idea is that you will find the clues. It's just what you do with them. As opposed to you could just be, oh, I'm in this room. What do I see? I don't know. Make a roll. Oh, I failed. Nothing. You saw nothing. <laughs> and, um, it's not really what the game should be about. Um, so I think that's a, a very healthy uh, development in investigative role playing. Definitely. And I think that's where you can see that, that Chronicles of Darkness pulls from with its condition system. Uh, which is what I refer to as essentially nudge mechanics because it, it's telling you that if you take on a condition, if you take on something that's negative to your character and you play you play into it, you're going to get ex- uh, beats which convert into experience points. Uh, if you play with that and you, you play with the... the that, being, that is very much like the fate system. Uh, it has uh, its inspirations from that. This investigation system obviously we've we've said is very similar to gumshoe and you know it's no surprise that that chronicles chronicles of darkness is just is is borrowing good design mechanics and i think because it's trying to push itself further and further away from classic world of darkness then i'm not surprised it's doing these things it's making itself a very good system for running uh for running personal horror games uh, more so than say Gumshoe, Gumshoe system and more so than say uh, than, than Fate. Uh, there's some other things in there in the rule system, but I mean, I've, everything else hasn't changed too much. They've changed how combat works. So essentially uh, weapons when they hit give you a dice bonus straight to the damage. They don't, you don't roll the full dice pool with the bonus from the weapon, meaning that if you don't, that you can get between zero and nothing, you now actually get the bonus on the damage. That makes, it makes things a little bit more lethal and I'm happy with that. I'm happy with that. Nothing wrong with killing, with characters dying too easily. I mean, I've played, uh, we've played enough, um, 
played enough unhallowed Metropolis, and that's got a, a very high kill count in that game. Or good old Warhammer Fantasy roleplay, that's always notorious for characters dying left, right, and center. Losing limbs. Um, yeah, yeah, losing limbs, going a bit mad, carrying around someone's head in your satchel. All the, all the fun of tongue-in-cheek horror. And there are actually quite a few parallels um, between Chronicles of Darkness and where um, uh, the the new Delta Green RPG are heading. So um, they've got a mechanic. I haven't got the book yet. I've backed it at some point. Um, I look forward to uh, reading it. But the idea of kill damage and just making uh, combat increasingly deadly so that players really have to think about, do we want this to escalate to combat? It, are there other ways around it? And I think um, if you want to encourage character-driven, investigative games, making combat increasingly deadly means that it's not the default option when things go wrong. You have to try, well, it encourages players to try to think laterally and think around um, other possible avenues to, to escape from a situation. Cool. Okay. Um, I don't think there's... Is there anything more to say about the the changes to the rules? Because, I mean, we could go in, into it for days and days and days, but a lot of it is is going to be familiar if you've played um, the first edition. Uh, a lot of it's going to be familiar if you've got the, uh, the God Machine Chronicles expansion. Uh, and really, as a system, it's brought in, like, things that from uh i'm trying to think it's broadening like there's some new merits which i really like uh like how you build there are sample merits and and sample cults so it's how to use your there's a merits for you know a mystery cult there is how your uh professions which comes from uh hunter the vigil so that's now part of the system as well uh there's a lot in here and it's a very good book to have next to you when running vampire the requiem second edition or any of the others the the core target market for this is perhaps um, people entering into chronicles of darkness who haven't um played uh old world of darkness new world of darkness i think this condenses a lot of information it updates what was in the core book it integrates the elements that were introduced with the god machine and i think it does so in a very neat and accessible way that um say a couple of years ago when you had old world of darkness new world of darkness second edition new world of darkness um which is you know slightly incomprehensible to people who have no background with regards to the game i think this is um far clearer and i think that hopefully it will make it uh, open up to a new um set of people who want to um use a storyteller system in this way mm. right i think that's enough gaming chat about uh, about rules and stuff in here i don't think we went too heavy even on darker days we never go that heavy on, on rules thank god because it can get really boring just talking about stat lines yeah i need like i said i've got i've got some ideas of i need to run i think my chronicles of darkness game using god machine uh like what i want to do for demon is mostly going to use berlin as a setting I feel like the idea of berlin as a setting for a chronicle sound yeah, you've been there once. You've got a feel, kind of a feel for it. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a bit of a, a mishmash of a city, so of old and new, east and west. So, and it is one of the suggested settings for uh, for Demon the Descent. So to use use it as a, you know, Chronicles of Darkness setting using the God Machine Chronicles uh, ideas would be uh, good fun. 
Would you set it in uh, contemporary Berlin or during the Cold War? Oh, um, I think I want to go with contemporary because there's still quite a lot of upheaval going on. And and visually, there's a lot of juxtaposition between both, uh, um, you know, Kais, you know, let's just say, you know, pre-world, pre-World War architecture followed by uh, very... Um, the kind of brutalist communist kind of architecture that you have. And then you've also now got uh, like the, the government buildings for, um, for Germany. Uh, They're, they're very ultra modern. Um, They're like massive concrete structures with like massive circles of glass and everything. So I think visually for me, it engages me and, I can I can get feeling of like there there are different types of cogs. Not all cogs are going to look the same, and I think that'll be maybe the point of the uh, of a chronicles a chronicles of darkness god machine chronicles game uh, for mortals. Uh, yeah, sounds uh, great. Yeah, I just need to come up with some ideas. Need to run Geist first. I think that's the main thing. Okay, if that's the end of that segment, we will now move on over to our Curly and Gambler segment. This segment uh, is a little bit like the secret frequency, but rather than us using real-world horror, we're going to be plumbing the depths of uh, TV and cinema and and finding what wonderful, wonderful uh, films there are to inspire us, or potentially what wonderfully awful horror films there are and what we can rescue from them. Because <laughs> sometimes you do watch a horror film and just end up going, that was naff. But that one little thing there can be rescued for a game. So you know, let's <clears throat> let's let's do do the world good in both ways. Um, so, least. what was the theme for this? We're going for like urban, urban horror. horror. I was going to ask how we're we defining urban horror. Is it um, just oh. low-level horror in a, a, a built-up setting, or are we talking uh, a link to urban legends or a mixture of the two? Sam? Um, I would say kind of a mixture because it's more like contemporary horror than, you know, because when you say urban, like one of the examples we've got is actually like in a suburban setting. So it's not meant to be taken literally, I don't think. Sure, yeah. it's a sensibility. Yeah. yeah. It's, I think it's meant to be that kind of like, it's the horror which lurks just around the corner of your street yeah and whether that is the uh the built-up metropolis of london or down in its dirty depths and it's uh and it's uh in the underground s- system or it could be another city that isn't so built up and a lot more run down or somewhere maybe like detroit where it's 
obviously it is a large city it is built up but it's not as populated and that in some respects lends to the horror mm-hmm. um or it could just be as you said suburbia yeah yeah cool okay so where, which film do we want to start off with first um Sam, where do you want to start oh uh, let's we've, we've already talked a lot let's let's, <laughs> let's yes. have some picks i think um i'm gonna say mothman because i actually to introduce it, I actually have some notes on the actual story of Mothman, uh, just to introduce the plot of the Fantastic. movie for those who haven't seen it. Um, so these are kind of uh, descriptions of the events uh, by Lauren Coleman, who's a cryptozoologist and a friend of John Keel, who actually experienced the events in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Uh, so on November 15th, 1966, uh, four individuals, which were two married couples, uh, were at a lover's lane in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Uh, the two couples saw two giant red eyes. Uh, they were very scared. Uh, the Mothman creature was described as uh, six to seven feet tall uh, with these red eyes and no head as if the eyes were in the breast area. Um, it also had huge wings. Uh, the creature came toward them, they ran away, and the creature followed. Um, it followed them right up to the city limits. Uh, the incident was reported to the local sheriff, who went to the lover's lane and searched around. He actually saw a puff of smoke in a nearby area, possibly the creature taking off and landing again. Uh, the account was ridiculed in the local press, uh, but more and more people began to see the creature. Over the next 13 months, over 200 people had some interaction with strange phenomena um at least half of them described the creature uh the name for the creature actually came from a copy editor at the local newspaper uh the creature had wings but uh, batman was on tv at the time so they didn't want to call it batman uh instead they called it mothman and the name stuck um in uh, 66 to 67 uh, point pleasant suffered a lot more paranormal and creepy events including things like ufo sightings and mutilated dogs among other things um a month after the initial sightings john keel a news reporter he got a contract in point pleasant to write a book about ufos um as he gathered info from locals he got very deeply involved in the events and uh, entities actually began to contact him via telephone Um, He claimed that the town was a vortex of phenomena. Um, He'd begun to receive prophecies from these entities, and one of the entities told him that when President Johnson turns on the Christmas lights at the White House, the whole Northeast is going to go into a blackout. Uh, So in December, uh, Kiel was waiting for the blackout in his Manhattan apartment. Nothing happened, uh, but six minutes later, the news reported the collapse of a bridge across the Ohio River, Uh, This was the Silver Bridge, which crossed uh, the Ohio River between Gallipolis, Ohio and Point Pleasant, West Virginia. 67 people fell into the river, 46 died. Uh, They found 44 bodies. Several people who died were related to witnesses of the Mothman. Um, John Kill published his account of the events in 1975. um, And he said that the phenomenon can't really be characterized or categorized. Um, and that's it. So it was never really explained or anything. Um, the, the movie itself uh, is based on these events. Uh, at the end, it's worth noting that the movie does say that they never found a reason for the bridge falling apart, but uh, they did actually find a reason. Uh, that's a lie. They didn't. 
What was the reason uh, they found? That, I think it was something like uh, too much weight at the time for the suspension. Mm. You know, just a just an accident, really. So in the film, there's a problem with the traffic lights. So you have yes, um, there is, yeah. queues of cars, um, nose to nose, um, going both ways. And so presumably the excess weight of that yeah. many vehicles on the bridge uh, at one point in time could put into a, a level of strain that it perhaps couldn't cope with. And that was really, yeah. really interesting. Um, and I think that it, it, it ties into both low level horror and also um, urban legends because when you were talking about um, the way in which multiple people started seeing um, the Mothman, it reminded me of the uh, the, the wave of uh, UFO sightings yeah. uh, in the States. And um, what becomes problematic is that um, for people who want to um, debunk them, um, that it's very easy to suggest that that's uh, a wave of mass hysteria that once yeah, the idea is being yeah. put in their mind, um, that people will see, they they want to see. Um, yeah. So the whole uh, Fox Mulder, I want to believe. <laughs> um, so I um, rewatched the Mothman prophecies last night as preparation um, for this podcast, and um, I think it it really holds up. The first time I watched it, I was um, slightly disappointed by the ending because. Um, it, it remains ambiguous um, mm. right to the final credits. There's no uh, kind of uh, big reveal as to what the nature of the horror is. But watching it again, um, I actually really uh, admire their willingness to, to maintain this sense of unease rather than um, slip into um, using some of the tried and tested uh tricks um for generating horror um that, that could have been brought in so um what i'm focused on is um the 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 core narrative of the film and how you could perhaps bring elements of demon descent into immortals campaign so building on what sam's just said uh the film uh is more or less about multiple encounters with supernatural entities that are trying uh, somewhat unsuccessfully to communicate with humans about impending disasters. So um, their communication may be very cryptic, um, but they also cause accidents, um, harming those they communicate with and um, frequently drive people insane. And so there's this sense that um, they are warning or um, they have prophecies about impending disasters um, but it's not clear as to what their motivation is. Are they trying to stop these things from happening? Or as one character in the film suggests, uh, they're perhaps trying to manipulate people to be in the area that disasters are going to happen in order to kill them. Um, and that made me think of uh, potentially, if you take that, that approach, you could think of them in terms of instances of angels of the God machine uh, that are giving people these prophecies in order to nudge them in the right direction, to get them to go to a place where disaster is going to happen in order for them to die as part of the God machine's plans. Or for instance, um, if they were demons from demons descent, and um, it's perhaps worth just mentioning here that um, essentially demons from demon descent are angels that have become self-aware and have um, unhooked themselves 
from the God Machine and have taken on um, uh, their own new identities. So, for instance, um, one of the motivations for demons and demon descent is that they want to foil the plans of the God Machine. Having um, broken free of it, they want to um, remain free of it and thwart its plans. So you could have a mortals game where there are a sequence of encounters that end up um, driving people insane in the film. Um, people's eyes bleed, um, their ears bleed. Um, and there's a sense that these entities aren't doing that deliberately. They just don't know how to communicate with humans without breaking them. So, um, you know, you could have players roles from the film, such as uh, journalists and police officers investigating these encounters uh, or perhaps um, they could be those who've survived an encounter and are driven to understand the cryptic messages imparted to them. One of the characters in the film becomes completely obsessed with trying to understand what these warnings might mean and, and what he should do about them. So I, I found it very rich as a source of um, potential inspiration for bringing angels and demons into a mortal's game and retaining that sense of an alien uh, intelligence. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's different ways you can you could play it. Um, obviously, in the Chronicles of Darkness book, they have they have the Mothman as a antagonist you can use, and a, a bit of description of how to use it. As you say, it's a it's a, it the more the more information it dishes out, the more it tries to interact with humans, more bad stuff happens, or more chaos is unleashed. Um, it's interesting. I mean, if it was if it was angels, then the question is what type of angel it is of the god machine. Is it trying to set things up so it can destroy a whole load of people at the right time, part of some strange occult matrix uh, for the god machine? Or maybe more interesting is if um, for a bunch of demon characters that they're they're chasing down. Each, in each individual person that's interacted with the uh, Mothman and trying to save them because they know deep down they're going to uh, to die because the demons can perceive the uh, the occult matrix that's being formed. Um, so I think there's definitely different there's different angles you can you can make use of of the uh, story and the uh, events in the film because. Uh, the important thing in the film, it make the where it where Hollywood takes can, takes reign of the story is that, as Sam said, uh, was it sixty seven people died? Um, yeah. And well, sixty seven people fell. Yeah. So the, I think in the film they make the point that the that Richard Gere's character, inter, because of his interactions with the Mothman, interactions with the other people that have seen the Mothman, that he's able to save the one save one person and then they realize the significance of the number they heard originally and that the number of yeah, people La dead Laura, now laura linney's character had a dream yeah involving the number 37 and she would have been the 37th pe person to have died on the bridge but he saves her and it's estimated that 36 people died and that's when they realize that you know it's actually significant yeah, so I think there's there's some fun there that as a as a as a storyteller you can try and construct some strange strange infrastructure or strange prophecy and see your players trying to 
Well, you can interpret also have, it. You can also have these type of uh, guardian angel characters as you know neutral characters, uh, as part of a of a story with a different antagonist. Because you know, if they are neutral, you know, you, you've talked about them being evil or trying to help people. You mm. know, whether are they doing this on purpose to push people toward disaster, or are they trying to? stop people from getting killed in a disaster you know what if it's neither you know but because when you talk about um their confusion and trying to communicate you know it's you know it doesn't necessarily have to be one thing or the other they're just telling people that you know they're prophesizing yeah yeah you can definitely just yeah. have a, a flat neutra neutrality to it um it's interesting it's, it, oh, it's interesting bringing up that kind of neutrality because i think that blends into how you can make use of the Quashillim from uh, Promethean, because even though they're, again, they're, they're angelic, fiery beings of Pyros, uh, the, the very, uh, uh, you know, very flame of, of existence from, from this other realm, they, they come in two types. There's the one which is almost driving cha change for positive reasons, and there's one which is more creating chaos just sheer chaos uh, again to drive change but it's more in a destructive manner and again i you can you can draw those being beings into other games and into a mortals game so just because they turn up in promethean doesn't mean they're stuck there you can make use of yeah, them yeah like not Absolutely. chaos for a higher purpose but no, chaos no, because it's just, chaos yeah. yeah and in fact actually they they become i think they become i think Thing, they become quite interesting if you use it in conjunction with the God Machine Chronicles, because I think the Quashillim are the antithesis of the um, of the the God Machine Angels, because you know the God Machine Angels are very much like these rigid entities working for some some strange, but it is a plan. Whereas the uh, whereas the Quashillim are are far more free of that and a more kind of divine inspiration type creatures. Absolutely. Um, at one point, just to tie into this notion of neutrality, um, Richard Gere's character, who he actually plays John Klein, um, asks, well, if there is superior intelligence to us, why can't they communicate? Um, and the cultist he speaks to said, um, you're a superior entity to a cockroach. Have you ever tried explaining yeah. anything to them? I was um, going to mention that, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I think that that, and again, that creates um, a manageable campaign because one thing that we perhaps haven't touched upon yet is the notion of you're running a mortals game rather than a mage game or a werewolf game or a vampire game. If the, um, the, the antagonists are above a certain power level, there may be absolutely nothing that mortals can do, um, but an entity that's more neutral, there's a sense in the film that there's no way he can stop the the Mothman, or, or Indrid Cole, I think is the name he's given, um, but he's still trying to interact with it and figure out what's, what's happening, but that's a way of bringing in quite a high power level creature without it all breaking down entirely. Cool. Um... I don't think there's much more to add on the Mothman uh, and the Mothman Prophecies film. 
Well, which movie do we move on to next on our list? <laughs> which one do you fancy? Go on, pick another one, Sam. Um, I, I'm picking them. Aren't I? Yeah, you're um, picking them. Uh, I guess it follows. It follows. Okay. Um, I'm not gonna. I'm. I'm gonna be. <laughs> I'm not the person who has to summarise this film. Maybe so. Do you want um, to lead us into I it again? I actually don't have any notes on the summary today. Okay. <laughs> I did notes on other things, but not on the actual storyline. So. So, it follows begins with a rather um, innocent sexual encounter, what was initially perceived as an innocent sexual encounter between mm -hmm. a girl, uh, uh, a boy, slightly. slightly older boy, and there's a bit of, uh, there's a bit of foreshadowing when they go to the cinema where he tries to point out this woman and she doesn't spot her in the crowd. And then, and then of course, in a rather a, a rather kind of shocking scene, you know, he he basically uses um, chloroform or something like that, knocks her out, and then when she comes to, she's bound to this uh, wheelchair, and this strange uh, entity approaches them, and of course, in the time it takes for it to approach them, uh, the the boy explains that it'll appear either as someone that she knows, someone that's dead, or someone that she's never met before, and... Yeah, it always looks human. Yeah. And then, before it gets too close, obviously, he wheels uh, the girl away, and he makes the point that he's passed it on to her. So now it, he used to have to deal with it. He can still see it, but she's now the one that has to... that it's now following. And uh, no but, one else... But, it, but, if yeah. it, but if it kills her, it'll come after him, so it'll go back up the chain... And and of course, no one else who who who's either it's currently following or it's previously been following. Uh, if you're not one of those people, good luck. Because uh, well, good for you because you you can't see it, but you can if you begin to realise where things are going on and you know, you begin to believe your friend is seeing this thing. Uh, you can begin to interact and in impede it, even though it is to you invisible. So. As the film progresses, essentially, it's this girl's uh, increasing um, anxiety and fear as she has to keep questioning whether the person that she's seeing that's approaching her is this thing or it isn't. And it is just who... And she has to obviously question that the person in front of her is this entity or it isn't. And so that's why she has to stay with friends and make sure that they can see this entity or not. Uh, and eventually it's her her convincing her friends that it exists and trying to conceive of a way of of or not conceive of a way but initially getting past the 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 um the morally question, questionable issue of should she pass it on so that means also engaging in sex with someone else to pass it on to them and dealing with the the problem that it may kill them and coming to terms with the fact that she may have passed on this monster to someone else. And after an attempt or two at that have failed and her, and her, her best friend has died due to her passing it on to him. Spoilers. Spoilers, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're talking about films, so there's going to be spoilers in this. Yeah. Um, 
but the thing is, is that um, they formulate a plan to to try and kill this monster, to kill this entity, which is not entirely... It doesn't. It, it works, but it only works for a short period of time. It, it's a brief respite before again. It's following her again. Uh, well, no, not necessarily. Well, that's not. The ending is ambiguous. It, yeah, you know it. You know the ending is shown that they're walking along hand in hand, and they are being followed by somebody. But it True. could just be an ordinary person. So that's the thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, what more do you want to add to it then from there? Um, about what? <laughs> about anything to the film? I mean, I mean, the score is very um kind of 80s kind of horror um i would say that i i like the score at points but i think it can be a bit over the top okay in some scenes i think it gets a bit too heavy um but mostly i like it um yeah i think it's uh some things to note about the movie and I think this was a deliberate choice um, on part of the director is that um, it's set in suburbia, um, uh, in the suburbs of Detroit, so nice suburbs. Um, and um, it's quite focused on white privilege. So all the, all the kids in it are white, really. And they, you know, they're pretty much untouched or seemingly untouched by, you know, urban issues such as STDs, drugs and violence. And, you know, the fact that they, they actually have to go deeper into the city of Detroit to actually try and find out answers about this entity and sort of, you know, um, they, they actually even mentioned that their parents wouldn't let them go into Detroit. And it's kind of like the, the whole thing is like a metaphor for, you know, you, you think these things can't touch you, but they can, you know, mm. they can affect anybody. It doesn't matter, you know, where you are socially. Yeah, I guess in that way, it, it's uh, it's drawing on the idea like how HIV was, you know, and AIDS was that disease of limited to a certain... Oh, a certain well subset or class of people even yeah hmm. you know it's, yeah. it's it's getting rid of, of that that stigma yeah really um i would also say that um you know uh, it's treatment of sex is not really slut shamey like a lot of you know earlier movies featuring teens you know like slasher movies where you know the girl has sex and she gets punished for it because obviously sex is bad and dirty if they die or yes. all their friends die yes yeah. um uh basically uh yeah it it seems to be that there are certain parts which are to me seem like a metaphor for like the male gaze you know the camera angles uh there are a lot of scenes with like uh boys watching the, there are boys watching her when she's in the pool okay yeah. and then you know a friend watching her through, through the window and and things like that um there are really things that you notice on a second watch really more mm. than anything um the the cinematography uh the coloring is very notably light instead of dark you know like a you know horror movie can usually be quite you know, take a shortcut with making things look dark to make them seem dark, but this is a different type of darkness. If yeah, you know what I mean, I think, I, I think, yeah, 
I think I think I yeah I can definitely get that because sometimes that's a, actually that's a good point. Sometimes my my criticism of some horror movies these days, or, or actually quite a lot of films, it's like you you're watching, you're like I can't see what's going on. <laughs> yeah. um, um, it's also quite ambiguous in time period because of the the usage of the soundtrack and actually you know how is it's all you know very uh, the the color schemes that are used within the houses everything looks quite dated Mm. so it's kind of you know it's it's a throwback to these 70s and 80s movies with teenagers where bad things happen um basically um i'm just looking at my notes i say basically a lot just to warn you Um, the, the fact that it's got a laid-back suburban atmosphere, it's juxtaposed by claustrophobia, anxiety, dread. I would say it's, it's a lot more of a dread-type movie than a horror movie. You know, it doesn't seem as immediately horrific. Mm. Uh, there's a couple of scenes which are, I would say, are, you know, reasonably shocking. Uh, I think you have one in particular. But, um... Yeah, uh, the, the teens aren't reckless or stupid. They're just normal, uh, unlike, you know, other slash features where it seems that they're being punished for that behavior. And sometimes you actually watch and think, well, yeah, you're, you're stupid. You know, you, you not that you should be punished, but, you know, of course these things are happening because you're doing something ridiculous, but they're not. They're just being normal teenagers. Um, I think the absence of, you know, like any parents uh, in this movie, it sort of amplifies the feeling of loneliness and helplessness that you feel during adolescence. Uh, uh, and the idea that you're isolated and different, like, uh, you know, with this happening to you and your friends not understanding or believing you, which kind of sometimes happens with things that you feel during teenhood and adolescence in general. Um, and finally, I would also say that I don't really see this as a feminist movie but i also don't see it as an unfeminist movie so that's mm. my thoughts on that whole debate okay yeah that's pretty much what i feel about it <laughs> david <laughs> um so yeah I, I i think sam's raised a lot of the the key points about the film um the soundtrack for me um i'm pretty sure um i saw an interview where the, the, the person who um, uh, put together the soundtrack was very much a, an homage to John Carpenter. So yes. um, soundtracks like uh, to um, Halloween and The Thing, and you can hear that um, very distinctly. So I wonder, just picking up on what, what Sam suggested, whether the film is implicitly um, set in a, an earlier era. Uh, can you remember if people use mobile phones? Because that's usually I quite a good... Spot- I think I spotted something that looked like a, a smart device. Yes, but they seem to keep it to a minimum on mm. purpose. So, yeah. It so it's kind of... Yeah. So it's, um, I, I guess, like Twin Peaks was contemporary and 1950s. Maybe It Follows is contemporary and 1980s and that overlapped in terms mm. of, of yeah. setting. Um, some of the things... There were definitely some really striking scenes in the film. Um, one of the, the problems for me is that they do this setup that this um, creature can look like someone you know, um, can sneak up on you and, and kill you instantly. Um, and yet the creature almost always appears as something completely incongruous to the setting. Um, yeah. I'm thinking about the, the, uh, the university when oh, yeah. um, it turns up as an old woman in a... Um, 
uh, a hospital gown uh, shuffling along and, and you can see it from about 500 meters away. Um, yeah. And I understand why you would do that because uh, visually it's more arresting than it would be otherwise. But that I found a little bit problematic in terms of um, the, the sense of horror. Um, I do think that any time it actually catches up with people, it becomes considerably more sinister. Um, I think maybe that's one of the points of it, though, is that you, uh, at first, you know, when you start seeing it, you know when it's coming because, like you said, it's so different from the surroundings. And, you know, that that's going to make you all jumpy and terrified and things. But, you know, it's, it's going to make you look out for things that look different. But mm. then it's kind of tricking you, isn't it? Because, you know, towards the end, I mean, actually what happens that it, it it turns up looking like one of her friends, even though the friend is actually there at the time. Mm. Um, That's the one on so, the beach. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, so there's a, a sense of guess, um, the threat escalating. Yeah. I was thinking maybe it, you can consider that this is some, if you're trying to like put it into like, what type what if you want to you know if you're running it in your game what purpose do you want to give it maybe that's the whole point it feeds on fear and the only way it does that it's got to set yeah, it's got to prime I, yeah, you for it I it's got to yeah um yeah it, it's just kind of uh, in my opinion sort of messing her about really, yeah you know and and the fact that it's it's frustrating when a creature doesn't seem to have rules in that respect because if it doesn't have rules you don't know how to defeat it mm. you know and it and it's not predictable so i think in a way that kind of adds to the the anxiety of it and that links to a lot of the 1980s um horror franchises so things like nightmare on elm street mm -hmm. um you keep thinking that um the characters have found the, the formula to yeah. um, to stop him permanently. And yet in the next film, he comes back. Um, yeah. So there's definitely some horror associated with establishing rules and then breaking them. Um, I thought that moral choice that you, you brought up with regards to um, do you pass on uh, the creature? And again, it's almost as though the monster isn't an STD itself, um, mm -hmm. but an STD that can be passed um and in in so passing has kind of reduced its effect on on the person um it really it was quite evocative for me of the ring mm, yes, yes yes and so um some of the horror is not actually from the creature it's it's that moral dilemma of if i don't pass this on i am likely to die but if i do pass it on the person i pass it on to is more than likely going to be killed at some point you know and that's a, a really horrendous ethical decision for someone to be presented with. Yeah. Which makes it a great um, plot point for a game. Mm. Yeah. I'm, I don't really have much more to add. Um, <laughs> I don't know whether I'm just, I, I'm racking my brains on whether it fits in with any uh, particular other, other game. Uh, I really, to be honest, I really wouldn't run it as as any particular type of thing from a splat. I run it just as some weird, unknown creature, and I think that's where it has its greatest strength. It's it's uh, it's it's unknown, and not to toot its horn too much, but that's what I like about Chronicles of Darkness. It 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 tell Chronicles of Darkness tells you to to throw in the weird stuff because even in Requiem, there are there are rules 
for even more vampires that break the rules of vampires and for typical you know kindred coming across vampires that breaks the rules it's scary because they don't give a damn about your masquerade so you know things are scary when they break the rules and they don't follow what you think is your established world and and that means you can you can scare monsters as well so you could possibly it follows you could take that idea and you could quite easily use it for vampires because it could be to do with feeding uh so you could possibly combine it with an idea of i think it's called is it the man in the mirror i think is a thing where when a, so in, in requiem when vampires look at their, their reflection it's all fuzzy and everything which is part of the masquerade um but it'd be interesting if you blended this with their reflection and it's the man in the mirror and obviously every time they see it in the mirror it's getting closer Absolutely. And if the creature can walk constantly um, and vampires um, have to sleep during the day, of course, um, you have this sense of impending doom because um, the vampire will have to continually move. And that means that um, we'll need to find lairs in different cities and uh, places of, uh, of safety, uh, havens, etc. So you could have a kind of, whereas vampires quite often tied to a particular city, if you were going to run this in a vampire game, it might be a way of motivating and giving a reason the vampires might move from city to city or town to town, trying to outrun it um, within the limitations imposed by uh, the amount of time they can actually be up and about. It also, if you tie it to feeding and that it gets passed from vampire to human to vampire through the acts of feeding, it makes vampires really bloody scared about who they're going to feed on. It's like, ah... Uh, someone's been someone's been poaching my herd and it's now all tainted um that's quite scary anyway back to the film itself is there any, any more points to bring uh, up on it yeah i just want to say sort of as an end point is that i read an analysis of the film which is like uh you know it doesn't seem to be about the dangers of sex specifically you can take it to be like that but it's generally that you know by living life you open yourself up to danger mm. And, you know, in that sense, it's like, you know, death is inevitable. Uh, death is actually following us all, but we're not privy to its path, usually. Mm. Uh, so in a way, it's kind of a modern memento mori. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a, a good place to finish, I think. <laughs> okay. Um, do we want to cover... We did, we've got a few more films on the list. Uh, another one that you want to pick? David, which one did you want to pick on the list? Um, I particularly like Candyman. Okay. We haven't watched that recently. I haven't watched it recently, but I think... I remember remember most of it, but you can give us a brief synopsis, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's uh, an adaptation of a Clive Barker short story, um, and it shifts location uh, to Cabrini Green uh, and the project there. And um, the main character... Uh, I will just check her name, um, is working on urban legends and the legend of the Candyman. And so, here we go. And so she's attempting to to figure out why people have constructed um, this um, bogeyman figure um, who appears famously 
if you say his name three times while looking into a mirror, um, I think that, that's actually probably more famous than the film itself. Um, and as it progresses and it appears that the Candyman is in fact real, um, the Candyman is particularly interesting because he's actually quite a tragic figure. You know, he kills mm. people horrifically, um, but what was done to him? Because um, back when he initially died, um, it was because he had um, a relationship with a white woman and was killed particularly horrifically, uh, including his, his hand being cut off and he's stung to death by bees. And so as um, as uh, the main character, whose name I'm going to... Uh, Helen Lyle, played by Virginia Madsen, uh, as she starts to find out more about his character when we see him, um, there's a, a sense of dread you know, Tony Todd is the person who plays him. He plays him supremely well. Um, and I particularly like it because it moves away from um, the quite simplistic morality structure of the slasher movie, which has all sorts of problematic uh, connections uh, to uh, gender identity and, uh, and for the reasons that, that Sam brought up. And I think it's a, a really effective use of the space of Cabrini Green um, in order to evoke a certain atmosphere. Cool. Um, any points to bring up, Sam? What do you remember of Candyman? I'm trying to remember more of it. I don't remember a lot. I just remember playing it in the bathroom at school. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> hmm. um, I think there's... The interesting thing about it is it's the very, you know, the action of how you summon him, it's that there's a temptation there because, of course, the temptation is, well, you want to, you want to test this legend and just prove it's, it's not anything. Um, but it actually is, and he appears and he murders you. So I think for uh, as a game it's for something to use in a game it's it's interesting just as as a very good example of of a um of an antagonist based around a legend which seemingly is able to appear anywhere and and attack anyone including you know inside a, a locked bathroom um i'm i'm not too sure what other ideas you got david for how you'd use it in a game um, I'd be tempted to bring in um, some material from Hunter. Um, okay, yeah. And in particular, the book Slashers. Um, yes. Is it Slasher or Slashers? It's Slashers and it's awesome. Yes, um, superb. So um, there are two types of Slasher from memory. Um, you have the mortal serial killer. And then you have um, the immortal uh, Revenant type figure. Can you remember the... The term that's used that oh i can't remember but you're right essentially you have you have different classes of of slasher so different kind of archetypes and then they're represented as you say by the kind of normal kind of i say normal very mortal form and then they if they so if they survive long enough and they 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 keep killing and they they somehow build their own urban legend or or mythos to themselves they transcend their their kind of mortal nature and become inhuman. Now that may not mean they're immortal, but the they the the classic example is like you know you've got um, 
Michael Myers, obviously, you shoot and he just still gets up and he's still there attacking you. He's he disappears and then he reappears. And even though you you've blasted him like three times with your with your pistol. Um, Michael Myers is a piece of shit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, are you thinking what type of archetype are you thinking with the with the Candyman then? Um, I was thinking in terms of so uh, I think one of the things that can become is a, a kind of avatar of murder. Um, and I think okay. that, uh, to a certain extent, what's really interesting in Candyman is that he's simultaneously uh, a pitiless uh, serial killer, but also uh, quite a tragic figure and um, comes to fall in love with Helen Lyle, which again, I think adds um, a really interesting twist to if you were bringing in a, a serial killer antagonist to have a, a link you know, you can think of uh, things like um, Bram Stoker's Dracula, the movie from the 1990s, um, and the idea of Dracula as being um, simultaneously uh, an inhuman vampire, but also capable of um, tragic um, uh, love um, to have desires that aren't just about killing absolutely everyone. Um, so I think that that could make for quite a rich mortals campaign. He's in some respects he's kind of like a, a ghost that's become a spirit of uh, a ghostly archetype and the spirit of death because there's as you say with his kind of like his more uh, human nature and his still uh, you know ability to fall in love that's almost part of of a way of how to resolve him and help him pass on so in some respects he could make a very interesting antagonist uh, you, know, you could use him as the basis of of an antagonist. For um, for Geist, I think you would have to make you would you can use the concept. You might just have to build a more uh, original urban legend around him that's suitable for your setting. You know, the moment you've got people dying when they say Candyman three times in front of a mirror, you know the the game is up and your players are like, I know what you're up to. Um, but uh, so that comes back to this notion that um, you know presenting players with things that they haven't encountered before is one way of generating horror. Um, and we go way back to H.P. Lovecraft. Initially, when he was writing, um, his Cthulhu mythos was um, set up to be something that departed as much as possible from traditional notions yeah. of um, vampires and um, Frankenstein's creature, etc. Um, I think over time, a game like Call of Cthulhu, if people have been playing for a while, um, as soon as some clues start to emerge, the player's like, right, I know exactly what this is, and this is how you kill it. Um, and yeah. <laughs> uh, and to a certain extent, you know, if they're good players, um, they will not overtly um, play the system and use that knowledge, uh, that out-of-character knowledge. But one of the ways in which um, various uh, games and supplements have suggested to reintroduce some of uh, this sense of mystery and, and and dread and horror, you know, the idea that you're confronted with something you just don't understand and you don't know how to engage with, is to change some of the rules. So um, change what they are vulnerable to is mm. a good one, or change um, some of the rules in terms of how they manifest and how they interact um, so that the players aren't going to have that moment of, oh, okay, we're out of the moment, um, we know what this is. We know already. how to deal with them. Get some Ex elder sign. Exactly. Paint it, paint it around, and you know it'll be fine. 
And that's um, not really what what you want to get from yeah. Yeah, from Colour Cthulhu. Um, on that note of of feeling of a sense of dread and a feeling of of heightening tensions and and especially in Cthulhu, you know, the sense of becoming slowly mad. Uh, midnight Meat Train. Nah, it was right. terrible. I. <laughs> if... It had yeah. some good ideas. Uh, I'm sure I haven't read the short story by Clive Barker, but um, we read the synopsis of that. And... Uh, I think it's mostly far more powerful in its yes. short form. Um, yeah. Uh, so, Midnight <laughs> Meat Train. Um, and actually... my, my notes say this is, a, <laughs> this is verbatim. <laughs> this is verbatim. <laughs> I hated it. Um, so, first of all, I didn't think uh, there was any logic to the ending. Um, uh, I think maybe you should actually, Chris, you should do the synopsis first. So I oh, can right. okay. so make a point. Let's, let's, do, let's do the synopsis of the film, not the book, or not the short story. Yes. So the synopsis of the film is a is a, a New York photographer, so more of an artistic photographer, not a photojournalist, um, witnesses a encounter between a woman and uh some hoodlums let's just use that term yeah some gangster types some n not very nice people in the subway train yeah <laughs> and um obviously he gets up he starts taking photos and, and that gives them enough reason to back down and uh let her go and then it's almost like a, a day or two later he reads in the paper that this woman who i think was a model that he recognized that she's a I think a model, yeah. She, she was a model. Yeah, so she's dead, and he's like, oh, what happened there? So he begins to investigate what's going on down in the subway. Uh, and he begins to take photos and so forth and try and get an idea of what's going on. And he encounters Vinnie Jones's character. So the main character is played by Bradley Cooper? Yes, yeah. unfortunately. Uh, and then, so he encounters Vinnie James's character, who we already know through the what the film shows us is the butcher, and we get some wonderfully over-the-top CGI of him killing some people and ripping them apart and so forth. But you don't know why; you just think he's oh, he's just a serial killer. Um, and then there's a few encounters where Bradley Cooper like witnesses him doing this on the train, and then eventually gets like caught. He wakes up, strung up. And he can't see what exactly, but some entity engraves on his flesh, you know, carves into his flesh this weird sigil. He then wakes up, not on the train, not hanging from his feet uh, elsewhere. And um, eventually, you know, he, it culminates in him wanting to find out what's going on, find out there's a conspiracy that's been going on for years, the police were involved. His Bradley Cooper's character's girlfriend who seems only there ready to die, essentially, <laughs> uh, gets involved in all this because she's thinking her boyfriend's going mad from it. And I don't really feel that his descent into madness is is conveyed very well. No, I'm not, not really... I'm just like, it's just... I just don't... I don't... I, I just couldn't, couldn't empathise with this guy whatsoever. Um, and then his, he realises his girlfriend is on the, the, the train, the murder train, and so obviously he jumps aboard, um, has a big fight with Vinnie Jones's character, the butcher, takes him out. Uh, eventually they get to the end stop, which is this weird place 
this this uh, under New York where there's tons of bones and everything. And the train driver comes out and says, please get away from the flesh. Spoiler alert. Crazy creatures come in and eat the the bodies that have been hung up that the butcher has obviously um, killed these people that night, ready to feed these creatures. So this is happening every night. Uh, Vinnie James's character then is eventually dead. And as he dies, he goes, welcome to the guy. And he basically reveals that essentially Bradley Cooper's character is going to be the new butcher, or at least that's what's meant to happen. Uh, he's not too happy with the scenario and is quite angry at the train driver, tries to have a go at him. But the train driver, we then discover, lifts Bradley Cooper up by the throat, rips his tongue out. And so you're now left with, oh, is the train driver, was he human? And is he becoming one of these creatures? Or is he one of these creatures with with a nice, pretty flesh suit. He's apparently human because he talks about serving them. Yeah. So, and whatever. Then, <laughs> and then to finally convince Bradley Cooper's character that he's going to serve as the new butcher, um, the girlfriend, who is lying unconscious on a big pile of gnawed bones, uh, gets stabbed by the stabbed in the chest by the train driver, who then rip, rips out her heart, which continuously beats for quite a few quite a long time in his hands and that's basically the end of it oh and then days later there's mr bradley he cooper photographer new who's yeah. the new butcher you compare this to what we read of the the short story and the short story he's not a photographer at all. no he's just a down and out guy isn't yes he? uh the reason i mean they they try uh they try and flesh out the story in a really boring way i feel um, because they, the reason that he's trying to take pictures of, you know, creepy shit that's going down in the city is because he wants to be like a real photographer and wants to get somewhere and, uh, you know, take pictures of things that are shocking, but it's real life, things like that. Yeah. Um, I don't think there was any logic to the ending. Um, like, I don't really know what his motivation is supposed to be for serving the creatures, especially after his girlfriend is killed. Uh, because let's face it, after you saw that, you would just commit suicide rather than serve the creatures, wouldn't you? You would just kill I yourself. I think on the, the spot. short story suggests that in that one, the original main, the protagonist, because he's down and out, obviously sees serving the creatures as a way of protecting his family, which he's obviously estranged from. Yeah, well, that from. makes sense. But in this, the film version, the guy's he lost have everything. Yeah, left right to to fight for, to believe in almost. Um, so yeah, like you said, the narrative doesn't show a descent into madness at all. Uh, the photographer background is pointless; doesn't really go anywhere um, because the, you know the side characters involved in the photography who seem like they might be important to the plot, but they're not. You know, Brooke Shields is in it for no reason at all, doing nothing. <laughs> um, Again, the girlfriend is only there as a catalyst for the ending. Um, yeah, about the train driver possibly be, he seems to be human and yet he can rip out a man's tongue with one bare hand yeah. for some reason. And also I hate Vinnie Jones and I hate Bradley Cooper. <laughs> so, oh, there you go. Um... But I, I think that the, the concept is salvageable it's well not, the original I'm, I'm sure the story is so the original amazing. short story apparently makes note makes note that the monsters are, are like it are kind of like 
the old gods, you know, kind of Greek, Roman old gods, and that, or they're at least humans that serve as butchers and eventually become monsters of their own. And it's very much this like, you know, offering, uh, offer, making offerings to the old gods to to please them, or else they're going to obviously run rampant and destroy Rome. Maybe that's how Rome was destroyed because Rome's got catacombs. Um, so you can connect that to Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it just it feels like they fleshed out all the wrong bits. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When if they'd gone with if they looked at what the monsters were, I think they could have been they could have fleshed that out and really made the conspiracy itself the more interesting bit. And they could have then filled the the, the movie more to do with the conspiracy, not how many artistic ways can we have Vinnie Jones butcher people in the next half hour? Yeah, well, you know, you know what? I'm also going to say that I'm a fan of gore and creative gore. I really am. I just, you know, I, I thought there was too much CGI. And I was also quite baffled when I looked up the movie after I watched it and saw that it has like 70% on Rotten Tomatoes, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Um, and, you know, the, the fact that there are so many good reviews of this, and I understand that it's sort of a cult, movie a cult classic now almost which is crazy you know if you can say classic now when a movie's it's, so new it's but, no um... night it's no night breed <laughs> it's no night breed but um <laughs> but uh what's funny about it is like you know i i don't think it's completely awful but the fact that it got such a high rating is really strange to me you know i don't really know what's there other than the gore and i saw a, a critics review of it which said oh yeah, it doesn't really have any substance, but it has so much gore and that's what the genre fans are looking for. And I, you know, I, I blatantly disagree with that, you know, that horror fans are only interested in the gore because it's like, yeah, some movies are, are good for oh, like, a, you know, if you're a, in the mood to watch gore. It's a victim but... of post-saw-based horror films, which is not yes, really exactly. horror. Anyway, David, anyway. <laughs> um, I your love opinions. It. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, I went to see it at the cinema. Uh, I think it was the the day it came out. Um, with there were I think four other people in the room, um, and had to travel quite a long way to find the cinema that was showing it. Um, I I really like it in terms of I think it's it's one of my favourite evocations of um, Clive Barker's style of uh, of body horror, and I really like. The occult aspects. I like that they don't explain too much with regards to what they are. My understanding, um, and this may uh, might not have been the case, but my understanding was I think they were hoping to do at least one sequel, maybe two, where oh, they would gosh. expand. Um, so that mystery about the the city fathers is something that they were going to go into. Um, I think that um, that's one of the most interesting aspects, and I think that maybe trying to get multiple films out of a short story uh, is problematic and, and maybe just include uh, that conspiracy within it. Um, but I thought Vinnie Jones did a really good job of uh, conveying that character and only saying a single word. Uh, I think that he had a certain sense of, uh, in particular, I'm thinking about the, the, the kind of physicality when he sat on the tube um, in a, an incredibly neat but also hunched up and unassuming way um and the way in which he would shift into um the butcher character so um yeah it was um i was kind of the opposite because i saw at the time uh it got a lot of two star reviews and i was kind of mm -hmm. baffled 
as to why. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I thought the ending was great. I really liked the the city fathers, who I think um, were the creatures. Um, and with regards to it, it's very much like you know, he has a sigil carved in his chest. The the uh, train driver might have been the equivalent of a ghoul to uh, the city fathers, whatever they are, and so he might be given powers. A Bradley Cooper, I don't get a sense it is a descent into madness. I think it's a um, becoming controlled uh, and losing free will. I think that that was my interpretation. It wasn't that he'd gone mad. It was that he was being drawn into this world and there wasn't really anything he could do to stop it. Yeah, I think I think that was probably the intention. And unfortunately, Bradley Cooper's a terrible actor. So that's <laughs> probably why. <laughs> I don't really find him convincing much. Um, I thought the cinematography yeah. was really good. Yeah, it looks it looks fantastic. It looks great, yeah. I think I it just... Get rid I, of the I CGI blood. Like I said, mm. I think it padded out too much in the wrong places. Like, I... I mean, I still think Vinnie Jones would have been fine in that role. I think there was just, I think they should have worked with his physicality more, and and relied on that with practical effects, not his physicality almost being a bit diminished by the the CGI ness of some of the ways some of the kills were done. It, it was because it, you know, it, it felt as though you know, kind of like removed from mm. what he could actually do, even though he's obviously has. Because I compare powers. that to like just the physicality of certain th- scenes and like lots stuff and two smoking barrels, mm. and it just seems night and day in that case. Um, I think they just needed a bit more of the mythology in there, just a little bit more to give it a case of. Oh, and and just feeling like I think they could have they could have streamlined the plot with the whole oh I want to be a big time photographer and the side characters I think if they'd you know just just kept it a little mm. bit more simple and just you know cut the fat around the edges I think it would have been a lot better. I think I the, love the, it. Oh, well, go on. the the mythology um, aspect of it is is uh, some of the most interesting elements and uh, although I really enjoyed the film I would have liked to see more as well I think that whatever was going on down there was really intriguing and I'd like to have seen a little bit more um, without because I I had a very strong uh, sense of Lovecraftian weird horror with the City Fathers that you weren't supposed to know what they are but um, you could still have expanded the um the conspiracy outside of them so you could have found out a little bit more um as to why this is being allowed to happen um, which would have been more interesting for the photographer because as a photographer you're very um be, you know being a photographer and being so caught up in in visual media you would have by going through kind of the history of the city and so forth you know more than likely would have picked up on the visual cues of this ancient conspiracy, not just not just the what the newspaper report said, but like you know you see this this sigil everywhere, you see the patterns, and then you and that's I mean that in itself is kind of a madness, and that's what I wanted more of a sense of, not the 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 mind, and that can lead into the avenger like losing control of yourself and being pliable to to the wills of these um chthonic entities 
Uh, but we, I didn't really get that, and I was disappointed. I think to a certain extent, you could have had... Um, I'm trying to remember, it's been a while since I've watched the film, but um, when the train driver, I don't think he necessarily explains why they're doing it. If he could have said that, you know, if we don't do this, this is what will happen, um, could be an additional motivation for Bradley Cooper's character. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're told, if you don't take on this role, um, everyone's going to be killed. And this is what happened. It's happened before. Which is why the yeah, death of the girlfriend yeah, kind of diffused the, the the whole need for it. Sorry, yeah. That would have made sense because, you know, without them actually saying it, it seems like they're saying, hey, you've got to do this or we'll kill you. In which case you would probably choose, yeah, just kill me then. Because that would... seems like less bother. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um... So they should have been more specific, yeah. There's definitely a lot you can rescue from it because it's very much kind of also has elements of feeling like it's a bit of a it's a very blood drenched neverwhere, especially yes. if you go with if you if you cast the character back to being a down and out person, then it's definitely a blood drenched neverwhere, um, and that I can appreciate. Uh, the I think there's definitely a lot you can use for. Chronicles of Darkness again. It works as a god machine because you simply remove the creatures and the the whole idea that the subway system is this occult matrix that is literally a meat grinder feeding the strange alchemical stomach orifice thing that's living at the depths of the uh, city that is somehow connected to the god machine. That's kind of cool. I can work with that. Uh, the idea that possibly that the creatures are the old gods, the old uh, of of um, that they're the primordials or they're the the old titans, and they still have to be placated uh, by by their pound of flesh or more. Uh, that I think just a, just a hint of that mythos, I think can add to it. And then you've got the idea of a mystery cult, which you can then bring into into the story. Uh, and then how do other people interact with them? Is there some bargain that they're willing to do to become immortal, but at what cost to become one of those creatures? Uh, I think in the short story, apparently the creatures also work for some larger uh, entity, uh, which is interesting to me. Um, uh, I wonder if it's Baphomet from uh, Nightbreed. That'd be a weird, uh, a weird twist. Um, you could mash it up with Nightbreed quite happily, I guess. Because um, Nightbreed, again, has very... Uh, and Neverwhere, I feel quite similar in that respect. You know, being outcasts. Uh, I also think uh, the creatures could easily be a, a, a very nasty, immortal uh, cadre of um, of Sentimani Prometheans. Yes, Absolutely. And obviously, with all that flesh about, they can easily make more of themselves or or craft them into uh, Pandorans. Uh, that'll be fun. Uh, and then you can really push the Greek-Roman mythos. Like, maybe they're all Sentimani of the, um, of the Galatean or the... Oh, shit, what's the other one? Galatean. Uh, what's the name of the... Stone Golem, I can't remember his name, but it's uh, it's from Sumerian mythology. But anyway, it's you can use Promethean for that. Yeah. Uh, 
you could easily use it for vampire. I'm sure you could turn it into some sort of flesh-eating vampire group. Uh, could you do something for changeling? Hmm, not so certain. Uh, the the train could easily be going down a uh, to an entrance to an Avernian gate in Geist. And yes, in, the flesh is required to keep the gate locked because you need to keep the door wet. Keep it yes. wet, keep it closed. Um, and oh, it could all be it could all be some uh, way to uh, it, it could easily be, I think it could, it's actually one of the ones that you could use most easily for any of the games, I think. And I think it's mostly worth going back to the original text and reading it. Absolutely. So one last film we'll do. Okay. Uh, we mentioned it briefly earlier, and let's cover the ring mm -hmm. and the ring too, most probably. Yeah. So we've watched. Well, are we talking about the ring or Ringu? Uh, I, think we I see talk... we're talking about the ring. Let's. Right? We can talk about both because there's not too much difference between them. Yeah. The the thing is, is that um, you know the. The Ring, the the American remake, is like you know the first you know the first and greatest of the J horror remakes. Honestly, yeah, I'd agree with that. Pretty solid, yeah. And I love Naomi Watts, so. <laughs> I think yeah. the cinematography in uh, the Ring is incredible, and yes. they had one of the scenes that I thought was really evocative and powerful was with the horse. Um, yes. on the ferry that, that really that really sticks with me every time um you know i just remember first seeing it and being really horrified by it. it's it's just it's, it is a horrifying scene honestly because you know it's 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 not really just that it's you know an animal death i'm not really sensitive to that but you know the way it's shot is just fantastic and just awful at the same time i think one of the themes in the ring obviously you know, you're, you're, you watch this thing, it, it kind of infects you and you have only like a seven days to seven, live. Seven and then days, you need, yeah. the only way to get around it is you make a copy of the tape. Spoil do we really need to spoiler alerts I on the really ring? I don't think so, no. I think that's <laughs> well and truly entered into yeah, popular culture. Come on, yeah. I mean, I feel like there's sometimes on darker days, like, do we really need to do spoiler alerts for most of these films? Like, if you're, if you're, if you're playing these bloody games, like get a life if you haven't watched some of these films already. Anyway, um, if, if we start talking about a film and you haven't seen it and you want to avoid spoilers, skip ahead. We'll have the list of the films in the show notes yeah. anyway. So if you go, oh, they can stop. But the, I think the thing with The Ring is it starts off, they, obviously, the horror starts off. We, we initially encounter, as the viewers of the film, the horror within an urban environment. And we're, mm -hmm. to get to the truth, we're, we're drawn out into this, uh, this unwelcoming and, and, and cold countryside. And the, the, where, at first to the, to, the, to the camp, the log cabin, where, where, uh, where the clues lead us to. And then that leads us to an asylum that also is out in the countryside, and then finally to to um, 
uh, Samara's uh, home and where the well is. Mm. And so it's, it's, it's all, it takes you out of your, it, I, there's that feeling of it's taking you out of your comfort zone, which is the familiarity of, of the city, which is in some respects has been infected by this tape and drawing you back to its origin. Um, Something I found really powerful um, is that in, uh, I think, I'm not too sure in the Japanese version, it's been years since I've watched it, um, but uh, you're actually shown what's on the tape. Yes. And so there's a, a meta element to it that um, even more so than Candyman, whereby you've then seen the thing that, yeah, uh, it, yes. that triggers it, which is um, quite immersive. And I think that's maybe something you could use in a, um, a World of Darkness game, like you know, you could potentially have on your laptop a clip of something um, that has this occult significance that um, is supposedly uh, destroys the people who watch it in some way. Um, I think that could be quite good if you I could find it as relevant. Thought of the connection between it before, but we'll talk about it at another time. But sinister is kind of like. Is kind of like the ring. Yeah, I, I think that's worth getting into another point mm. because there's there's a lot of other things you could take from that, you know, with with the actual entity that's behind it all. So that yeah, yeah. that's because like because like, in yeah. the ring the the entity is is a ghost. I think I I don't know whether in the Japanese sequels, because there's actually two sequels. They brought out one initial sequel to Ringu and then they retconned it and they brought out a, a separate, different sequel. Um, so I will also point out for those who don't know that they are bringing out a, a third uh, remake movie called Rings. They are coming mm. out with that quite soon. I would, yeah, I, I, I think that it's one of the best mythologies in horror cinema. Um, I would also say the American remake is in my top three of horror remakes. Yes. Um, and I would put it alongside um, John Carpenter's The Thing and David Cronenberg's The Fly. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's just a really, really classy, um, well-constructed, um, beautifully pitched in terms of atmosphere, pacing, etc. Um, it's just a, a, a real achievement. Yeah, I think it's a you know it's kind of a detriment when when people hear remake and they automatically think oh it's not as good it's going to be terrible you know I, I've heard people say really snobbish things about the remake of The Ring and I'm like you know do you really believe that or you know are you just saying that because you want to sound cool because it's actually an amazing movie? <laughs> uh, no, I'd, I, I'd agree. The original is <laughs> fantastic as well, but um, yeah. I think that they are different. Um, just like the thing and the fly, they are significantly different, and it feels like the remake uh, didn't just attempt to uh, copy and paste; yeah. it was reconstructed. So it has a lot of the same plot elements. I, I think, in terms of uh, that, so if you're using this for the game, um, the the well, the imagery of the well, um, uh, the, the figure crawling out of it, um, people being so scared that they die with their jaw dislocated screaming um i for me the the the, the scene it where um she actually steps out of the tv into the room um it was one of the and then sort of phases in that reality getting closer and closer 
uh, was one of the the most effective. The first time I saw that, it was incredibly powerful. Yeah, I remember the first time I actually saw that was on. Um, I it wasn't actually when I was watching the movie. It was a uh, uh, a few years ago or several years ago, really. Uh, when Channel 4 had their 100 Greatest Scary Moments countdown, and uh, this was in the early 2000s. And I think they had it for the original, for, for Ringu. And um, they they showed that clip of uh, Sadako in the original coming out of the TV set. And um, I was really, I was absolutely enthralled by it and, and terrified, you know. And I remember after I turned off the TV, I kind of, I walked back to my room with my back against all the walls because I was so <laughs> petrified that something would be behind me and it really stuck with me. And um, I wouldn't really say it's because of that movie, but um, I, I've i had sort of sleep paralysis on and off during my life and it's usually had the same element of uh, a creepy girl with long dark hair in the corner staring at me. Uh, which is why I have this sort of very personal horror about the mm. ring. Although that used to describe me as well, a, a yeah. creepy girl with long dark hair. That's why I cut my hair. <laughs> um, in terms of horror and then J-horror, I think it's important to note that I think this film, I think this film makes it maybe a nice approachable way so you can get into the mood of J-horror because yeah. J-horror has, has its own its own rules in some respects and there's some really good ones out there like you know there's the grudge um there's white that was a, a white really is, good one uh, we need is, to talk about that another day i'm gonna correct you white is k-horror it's, it's k-horror okay <laughs> but they i think i don't want to say they're all the same there but they as Asian culturally horror, yes. they they draw from a, a certain baseline culturally of certain commonalities and this of course gets on to why um, very, very sad they didn't make it, is why Silent Hill 2 is the best bloody horror, survival horror computer game you can get that draws, again, draws elements of J-horror into a Western setting. And I think that's maybe the best thing, again, that that's the best thing that Ring, the Ring does, the remake, is it, it gives a good way of showing how to take j-horror asian horror elements and recast them and how to use them in a western european american setting because you can then do some really funky things yeah i i would say that you know now sort of the the characteristics of j-horror uh with you know their their creatures and their demons and, and, the, and the way that they move you know, is is very you know there was kind of a blueprint for that with with Sadako and Samara with mm. the, the way um, in in the Ring Two um, where um, where it's in the well yeah and, and she's she's climbing out of the well and then she goes after her um, like the the way that you know she crawls in that very like inhuman way is very very iconic and it's. You know, so many other, you know, you get a lot of uh, Hollywood movies trying to replicate that that now. I, I think they do sometimes do it successfully. I think it's sometimes seen as a shortcut to, oh, God, that's absolutely terrifying. Yeah, you yeah, know what yeah. I mean? And, but sometimes it's very effective. And But it is, as I said, really, really iconic. Do they do something like that in Shutter? Uh, it's similar, yes. And Shutter's another good J-horror. 
but I it's, think is it, it's Korean. I'm not is sure. it Korean? But again, that one. The interesting thing there is it's set in whichever Asian country will be corrected on this. Oh my god! But who's the lead character in that? Who the lead actor? Sorry. Uh, in the remake, uh, Joshua Jackson. Yeah. Yeah. From Dawson's Creek <laughs> <laughs> and other horror uh, films as well, um, and and things. But I think that's. I think that's the take home from the ring is that you can you can recast these horror tropes in in a familiar world which is a familiar place which is not Japan not Tokyo or not Korea and you can still have a lot of fun with it and it will add a lot of again that um unnerving kind of uh, unknowable kind of horror yeah, um, I, I was mistaken as well. Uh, it's a Thai horror movie. Oh, it's Thai. Okay. I'm very, very sorry if I offended anyone. Yeah. Um. Another really good example is A Tale of Two Sisters. It's a Korean film. Yes. I've seen that. I, I thought it was super. Uh, there's one. actually a remake of that that I hear is awful. <laughs> so, yeah, but my friend told me about it the other day, and now I'm keen to watch it for some reason. <laughs> I would very yeah. strongly recommend it. Do you know? What? I actually think there's the scope for a, maybe a retrospective in terms of um, Southeast Asian horror and yeah. its uh, lasting effects on on uh, Chronicles of Darkness and horror role playing because there are like the 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 girl with the long dark hair um, draped mm-hmm. over her face has become a, a stock image of horror um, that's drawn upon in lots of different places. So. I think the scope, um, potentially, I think I probably have to rewatch uh, a lot of these films. But um, I'm also going to make a really good point here, and that's it's. I think they're important to look at both a as inspiration for your own game, b yeah. as inspiration if you're going to set a game in one of those countries, because obviously they, those ghosts are attached to certain cultural folklore and mythology and religion and and traditions and when you do that i think again you've got to be you've got to be careful how you do it because the route you don't want to go down is you don't want to go down the cultural exoticism that kindred the east did for classic world of darkness um that basically turned vampires into anime horror and you don't want to do that. Chronicles of Darkness is not Goku and horror. I'm sorry. Um, that would be crap to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, think we've covered a lot. So, you got have. any last points there? Um, well, uh, there is actually uh, a role-playing game produced by Cubicle 7 called Kuro, which is yes. pretty much an attempt to, to, to um, create uh, a setting and uh, a system that's built around some of those ideas uh, with regards to horror. So maybe if we did an episode on that, we could have a look at Kuro. I, yeah, I could. I think sometime once we've covered all the, the main games and we want to delve into, into uh, Southeast Asian horror, I can, I'll grab a PDF of that beforehand and we can get acquainted with that and watch a whole host of Good. films and watch white again and yeah. other things. Um, 
oh, does that mean I have to play on? Does that mean I have to get Silent Hill Two again on the X on my Xbox? I had it on. I had it on the on the Xbox. I don't have it on my 360, and it scares the crap out of me. Actually, they're trying to revive Silent Hills. <gasps> oh joy! <laughs> joy! Don't play Silent Hill Three. That's uh, Silent Hill Four. I don't know too much about Silent Hill One's all right. Um, Silent Hill films. Mm, uh, visually, visually nice. in some parts. Uh, Bit of the, a railroad. The, the end. The church is, is really oh, that's a, that's insane. A, that's, a, that's a discussion for another day when yeah. we can bitch about how those films are a blight and a pox upon the games. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, I think I think we're ready to wrap up there because um, so. uh, we've covered all our topic points for this uh, for this show. Um, I think next show we're going to have to do it. We're going to have to do Vampire the Requiem. I'm it's that. time. It's time for second edition. It's time for the strip, uh, strips chronicle, or as it was at, during Dev, it was wonderfully known as Sex Murder. <laughs> the book was, that was its code name was Sex Murder. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, of course, most probably in the curling camera, we're going to be talking about all the different vampire films we've ever watched and more. We'll have to pick out a short list and then bitch about the rest. That could last for several hours. Yeah, so we'll have to pick out some highlights, and then we can, and then we'll have to pick out briefly some some lowlights. Oh, I say lowlights, some lowlifes. <laughs> uh, we'll pick out the crappier ones and and say how we can rescue anything from them. And I think that's a good enough uh, outline for that show. How we can be contacted. So, ah. Uh, because I'm going to put this through it'll be on the Darker Days Facebook so the best way to get in contact is mostly Darker Days Radio Facebook group our Google Plus community uh, darkerdaysradio at gmail.com uh, is the best place to uh, send us some uh, some Network Zero uh, fan mail we do get fan mail for Darker Days and you never know we might be able to fund a competition at some point again that'll be good uh we have a Twitter, which is Darker Days Radio. Uh, you have a Twitter, David, for Twisted Tales. Yes, um, Twisted Tales, for those who aren't aware, is a series of horror readings in the UK. And uh, there's an associated blog where um, I've interviewed and uh, got academics and uh, fans to write reviews of the best 21st century horror. And that's um, at Morbid Jack and Ori, uh, all word, uh, on yep. Twitter. Um, there's the Docker Days blog. That's just Toy Soldiers. So you should post some Toy Soldiers there. So I'll make sure you're now a contributor on there because you've got Toy Soldier crap. I'll have just, to paint just them. for that. <laughs> and also, that's where we'll put the write-ups of our Geist Chronicle when that gets started, hopefully in a month's time. Uh, Sam, I am on Twitter and Instagram at Sam Capral. So that's S A M K A P R A L. Yeah. <laughs> uh let's think is there anything else no that is all so this is finally episode one of uh network zero and thank you for listening you suckers <laughs> night night bye bye
Oh, the ring. Oh, yeah, I think that's the one. Yeah, Let's finish on that. the ring. Yeah. Shit. That kind <laughs> of ties it. Yeah, and that kind of ties in with what we were saying with which one. Uh, it follows. Mm-hmm. But does it? <laughs> it follows. But does I it love, really follow? I love that. <laughs> but yes, it really does follow. But does it, it really, really, really follow? <laughs> we're going to do, we'll have to do Mighty Boosh Inspirations for World of Darkness. Because come on, the Tundra episode is a World of Darkness. It's the mount, it's at, at the Mountain of Madness. Boosh is like, it's just Cthulhu mythos on crack. <laughs> to the crack, crack fox. <laughs> I hate the crack fox. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or the or the cockney. Or um a Baraka. Or uh <laughs> Beat Matt's Bandit. He's a perfect antagonist. Milky Joe. There we go. He's a son of a bitch. I think you could totally do this as like a a one off <laughs> show. The horror of Mighty Boosh. Horror of Mighty Boosh. I think that's our Halloween episode. Um, <laughs> that'd be amusing. Um, <laughs> Spirit of Jazz. I think you could actually um, do how you could insert horror elements into um, British TV. Like, I mean, you have things like League of Gentlemen, but then you could do like Black Books. Because, you know, people like Shaun of the Dead and things, don't they? Like, I'm sure you could make a show. Oh. Oh, we need to talk about that film, won't we? Or one of them that mostly fits into eldritch horror, right? At the end is um, the stone tape. I love it. Yeah. I really didn't get it. Though. <laughs> <laughs> I really didn't. Yeah. We talk about Ghost Watch. Ghost Watch. Well, yeah, we'll have to talk about Ghost Watch when we do talk about do an episode about ghosts. Hey, I'm back. All right. Yeah, Hi. we know about it. So there's no way to pause these recordings. They just keep going on. So it's just gonna have to cut it out. That's all. Brilliant. It's post post credits entertainment some of it um right hold on get sorry my my screensaver in my head. um 